You're listening to Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias. The world's locked down and travelling isn't really an option. So I thought, why not do the next best thing and talk about it? From living all over the world to working as a tour guide, I've seen some amazing places and met some great people. Each week, I'll speak to globetrotters and industry professionals about their travel bubble choices to provide you with post-lockdown inspiration and top travel tips. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias. I hope you are well wherever you are in the world. We've finally made it to 50 countries, 5-0, so 20 episodes in and we're in 50 countries, not so bad. Our latest country is Jamaica. Jamaica, Jamaica! So big shout out to our new Jamaican listeners. Big welcome, I'm glad to have you on board. Or maybe it's just someone using a Jamaican VPN. Either way, I'm going to count it. 20 episodes, 50 countries. Had some lovely feedback about episode 20 with Christian Schubel, the gaffer, my boss, at Intrepid. People enjoyed that and it was the epic episode. It was the longest episode we put out to date. But a lot of people listened to the full thing and I appreciate it and I've got some good feedback. People really enjoyed that. So go go back and listen to that if you haven't already. In Matty Dias news, I've been I've done a couple of tours. I um, I've taken two groups on a hike around Cornwall so far, and I got uh, five star reviews all around, which is good, isn't it? Five stars out of ten. I mean, five stars out of five. Yeah, yeah, which is good. It's what I wanted. Basically, hundred percent top marks. So if you are down in Cornwall uh, this summer, or you know anyone that is, point them in my direction, and I'll take them for a walk, and I'll tell them all about smuggling and piracy and mining and some interesting things as well i was joking that is quite, how do you make it interesting and it's quite fun anyway i'll stop going on and i'll get back to the episode and this week's guest rachel stratman and i recorded this episode back in 10th of february 2021 with rachel and big thank you to her for coming on she had a really hectic uh 2020 and she's we're going to that in detail during the episode so stay tuned for that but big thank you for to her for giving us um her time to come onto the episode i met rachel in bangkok along with her husband quentin a few years back now and they are really they're a really cool couple and they've been all over the world they currently live in the usa but the last time i saw them was i went over um for a friend's wedding in las vegas big shout out to big dan and before I flew back to Bangkok, I um, stopped off in LAX and um, stopped off in Los Angeles and Quentin came and picked me up at the airport and we went and did lunch and had a few beers in like downtown LA, which as a as a young guy from St. Helens growing up, like that's what you kind of dream of, going going for lunch in Hollywood, downtown LA, whatever. <laughs> it actually came true with Quentin and Rachel and I think it's so good living around the world and having these friends all, all over. It's really great. And that, that was one example of, like, you've got to fir- spur a few hours in LA. Oh, let's go and meet Quentin and Rachel, have a good time. But this is a great episode. Rachel's been all over. She she did this video for her 30th birthday where she, um like, does, you know, the song Happy by uh, Pharrell. I won't sing it in case uh, the episode gets taken down because I do actually sound quite like Pharrell. But yeah, I'll show that video. It's quite interesting. 
Um, she, so she's been all over and did this, and she was filming a documentary at the time talking to millennials. So in this episode, we talk about all these places she's visited. We go off on tangents. We talk about love hotels. We talk about dune diving. Get a bit political as well. It's just really great intellectual conversation. I really had to raise my game with Rachel. I have, to, I have to pretend to be clever when I'm speaking to Rachel and Quentin because they're they're very engaged with politics and society, ethics, and I have to pretend that I can I can talk about that sort of stuff as well. <laughs> so I think I got away with it. I'll let you be the judge. But um, let, do let me know what you think. Travel Bubble is free, but if you do want to support the podcast, I'd ask you to share the podcast with your friends like us on Facebook, like us on Instagram. And if you've got Apple, go on, give us five-star rating on Apple and write a little nice thing about Travel Bubble as well because it helps us boost us up the rankings and gets more people seeing Travel Bubble. It really does help. But without further ado, we'll get right into it. I'll be back at the end for some more Travel Bubble Film Club, a bit more chit-chat. But welcome to our next guest, episode 21, The Osaka Moment with Rachel Stratman. Hello, Rachel. Welcome to Travel Bubble. Thanks, Maddie. Great to be here. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. It's yeah, a little so chilly this morning. <laughs> it's, it's quite cold here, you know. Um, for, for the listeners, where are you? Um, I'm over in the U.S. on the California coast, up in the mountains. So it's a little chilly in the morning. What are you calling chilly? What's that? Um, I think it's about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So for all the Celsius people out there, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I have no idea. That sounds hot. <laughs> it's cold, quite, I It's quite nice. No, I have no idea. Um, I'm in Cornwall at the minute and it is quite quite cold, like minus wind chill factor. Um, so I went out for a run then and I was just too cold. I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> I was just like it's too cold for this so I just I ended yeah. up walking a bit to it um, but yeah thank you for getting up early and joining and I was on Travel Bubble you mentioned a bit before we started recording that you're up in California there's a bit of a story there that you, you you're not where you should be right now why is that? yeah so last year in August uh, in California we had those really terrible wildfires and um our home actually burned down in the wildfires. And so we are currently, um, you know, doing a little bit of staying with my dad and um, bought a camper van and moving around and, um, you know, just trying to make the best of it while we have to rebuild and try to move back from that experience. So, yeah. So you live in like the, the Redwood forest, don't you? Which is like an iconic, yeah. The Redwoods are what they are. You, you live like at the foot of those trees kind of thing, don't you? Yeah, the first state park in California um, that ever um, was founded, we live like walking distance from it. So we live within like the, you know, 80 to 100 foot tall redwoods up in Northern California, they get even kind of taller. Um, so we're in the coastal redwoods. But yeah, we were right in the middle of all the redwoods and um, big huge lightning fire and it just ravaged our ravaged the land so it's devastating like i've seen some of the photos and it really is awful but you say like you're slowly getting like you get you're in a position where you're perhaps going to rebuild on that land and get it sorted yeah we're definitely going to rebuild um you know with 
everything that's going on with global warming, um, there's obviously a really big fear that the wildfires in California are just going to keep happening at a larger pace. Um, so there's a little bit of you know concern in general about how to live, and actually, you know, the our county. Santa Cruz County of California is actually trying to start to work with a lot of like the indigenous um, people, the Ohlone people of the area, because they used to do um, very strategic burns okay. every year, which really kind of cut down on the brush that would just kind of ravage an area. And that's not been going on. And so like, I hope we kind of change our practices and perhaps prepare for this because it's just a reality of the area. Like there's going to be yeah. fires and so you just it's have like, to prepare. It's like knowledge that isn't lost yet, but like th those people who, who whose land it is originally is and still is what, um, they, they could be, st they, they, they be sitting back going, well, we, we told you that was going to happen because you're not doing X. So you're thinking that that's, that's something that going forward that they'll start to like mend. I'm hoping so. There's parts of California that are working more and more with the indigenous people with some of the things that they did for hundreds and hundreds of years before colonial, you know, people came. And so I think I'm hoping we're kind of awakening to that and we've learned our lessons. Um, but we'll we'll have to see. Yeah, well, on the subject of that, um, I was recently in Australia well, last year and a big thing over there is recognizing the indigenous people whose land who, who, they own the land and you see a lot of television broadcasts a lot of public uh, speakers or a lot of events at the start of them they will mention um thank you to like such a um such a people they are the original landholders of this of this region um you're the first american person i've seen do that i saw you do that on instagram the other, the other day you're the first american i've seen do that is that a practice that's that's becoming more prevalent. I wouldn't say that it's um, trendy or popularized in any way here yet. Um, and I haven't unfortunately seen things really on um, the TV much. Um, but I do think that it is, if you're already in kind of a anti-racist circle, right? If you're already in a fairly kind of um, leftist progressive circle, then it's become very popularized. Right. And the fact that like you start meetings and you honor that you're on that land, like right now while I'm talking to you, I'm on the Ramatish land of the Ohlone people. And, you know, we would ground in that way. And then we would start our conversation so that it's never away from us that, you know, we're, you know, the United States is just a subtler imperialist nation and that you're actually on someone else's land that has never really been respected or um, compensated in any way for what they've gone through. Yeah. And yeah, I get that. So we mentioned like you're losing that, you're losing your house. It's a global pandemic. 2020 has been a crazy year for you in another way as well. Oh, right. So about a month before the wildfire, we lost our house. Um, I had been struggling with kidney failure for about two years now. And about a month before the wildfire, I finally got a kidney transplant. Um, and the donor, actually, you know him very well. He's my husband, Quentin. So um, that was an amazing highlight um, of the year. Definitely. Yeah, like a li literally a highlight because it's like saved your life. Did it? Is, is, is it save your life? Prolong your life? Like, 
like what what's the terminology there yeah so currently um people have had uh, a transplanted kidney work for up to like 50 years so it could have completely saved my life if i'm lucky um the average is um about right now i think it's about 15 to 20 years and so there's a really good chance i'm gonna have to have a second transplant in my okay. life um but i have to say like I am completely healthy at this point. I've been on so many medications for so long and all I take is the medicine just to make sure my kidney isn't rejected right now. And yeah. so it's like a beautiful process that it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's so, so amazing. And is it, is it lucky that Quentin was compatible or is it, is it any, will any kidney do? So like I had family members get tested, um, and I, I was lucky I had actually like a cousin and an uncle and my husband all get tested and they were all matches. So, you know, being a match can happen. I think they've gotten to the point where they know that like there's um, it's a level of a match. Right. So a lot of people okay. might be able to match. But my husband was actually a really strong match and he was the healthiest. Um, so they were like, we're going to do that. So I thought that was it's it's, yeah, it's kind of amazing. Oh, that's great. Um it is a travel pod- podcast, but the reason I'm asking all those questions because it kind of leads in to like where you are right now. Like you mentioned it a bit earlier, you're you bought a camper van and you're going to go on like see see America for a for a bit. Yeah, because of the pandemic and because of my life being kind of difficult the last couple of years, I haven't done very much, and I'm someone who loves to travel, loves to experience new places. So I found a way to do that the best I could. Um, and we bought a little camper van so that we can be COVID safe um, because I am immunocompromised. So I have to be extra careful about um, COVID. Um, so we can be COVID safe. So I have a, my own bathroom. I can just protect myself no matter where I am yeah. and uh, go to all the little places in the States. And the States are large. So um, we've already done a couple cross country trips because uh, why not? But we're going to do a couple more and get it all done. <laughs> That's great. I, I think it was Quentin who said like he, he wanted to visit all the states, and he but he only counts it as if he slept if he stayed overnight in that state. That's the only that's the only way it counts. I seem to remember yeah. him saying that. Yeah, I I don't know if we added to it, but we also now say you have to leave a deposit. Um, that's our that's our hygienic way of saying it um <laughs> you have to stay somewhere long enough to like you know but but yeah i i we also want to throw the territories in there too we just want to get to everywhere so yeah we'll see so that's one of the questions i ask people like why do you think i invited you to be on travel bubble like i like that i'll open that to you why do you think i asked you to come on um I guess I don't totally know, but I will say that I think the one thing that I've done that maybe might make you think that it could be interesting is we did a 14 month backpack across uh, three continents. And I was thinking that might be why. Yeah. I reckon that's why I asked you. Yeah. Um, that was, that, that was definitely part of it. Uh, so we met in Thailand, didn't we? Like maybe like six years, seven years ago and you came over for a year. Was it a year in Thailand? We only did about six months. Oh, really? Because, yeah, we only did six months. We were, we were kind of itching to keep moving. Um, 
so yeah, we started there and that's where we met you guys. And we did the, we did the teaching, English teacher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you were doing a documentary at the time, weren't you? Like uh, about the generation X. Yeah. Yeah. Gen- no, millennial generation. Yeah. You, you, our generation. So, uh, you know, unfortunately the ever evolving and, you know, there's a, there's a website kids these days and, and you can find out more about it, but um, yeah, we definitely were interviewing people everywhere we went during that trip. Um, a lot of our footage from China, a couple other places got lost in the trip and it was painful. Um, yeah, but- I was going to ask you about that. Did, didn't you have like border issues because you're technically documentarians and you had all your kit with you? What was that? Yeah, that was again actually China. Um, I feel like did they come and like steal my footage? Like they knew, they knew. Um, oh, so hard. Yeah, no, uh, we had to be careful because you know they asked your occupation, and even though we were a little bit you know vagabonds at that time, and we had taught English our true occupations, we had were from LA, we were filmmakers, um, and so we kept, we kept putting filmmaker down into our occupation, just not even not even worried about it on every visa. And then China um, just stopped us cold and asked us 20 questions. We almost didn't get in. There was another reason we almost didn't get in too, though I'll talk about that later. Um, But, uh, and then we were actually denied another place, India, but I'm not necessarily so sure that that was because um, we were filmmakers. I think that had more to do with coming from um, the Middle East. And okay. so that's, yeah. So I will say people sometimes, you know, um, think that the American passport is the strongest passport right now. It's absolutely the weakest passport as we know <laughs> during the pandemic, but even five years ago, it, it, it was not always going to work for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so you, you were going around filming. One of the other things that you made on your travels was this, like basically a video of you dancing to uh, Pharrell's happy. That's right, <laughs> and that always sticks in my mind. It was like oh, every country you, you did like a little segments of camera. Yeah, we were traveling when that song got really popular, and I fell in love with it because it made me happy. And um, you know that was his little thing, and it was getting really popular. Everyone was doing it, and so um, yeah, we started in Thailand. Luckily, um, luckily, like I think within the last couple of weeks, right before we left, because we started our trip in Thailand. Um, I danced there. So luckily I danced in every, every country and, um, yeah, it was fun to put out. A lot of people say that a lot of people are like, whenever I hear that song, I still think of you. So that's kind of fun. Is that still <laughs> available on like YouTube and stuff? It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and, um, complete with, uh, complete with me getting thrown off an elephant and, um, dancing with, zombies in tokyo and yes it's there <laughs> that's cool like we've not seen each other for a long time but i remember i had a i had a layover like from vegas and i was in la for like eight hours and you were living in downtown la at the time and i messaged you guys and you came and picked me up and we went out and i was like that is like the coolest thing ever <laughs> like i had a layover it's like when i was a kid i dreamed of like oh maybe i'll have a layover in la and I might go and have a Mexican food downtown LA with my uh, friends who have a loft apartment. I felt like I was proper Hollywood or something. <laughs> yeah, we, um, 
That was fun. Uh, I remember that. Um, that's my favorite part of traveling though, right? You make friends from all over. I mean, we when we went to Panama one time, we made friends from, they were Portuguese, but they live in UAE. So then we went to UAE, we stayed with them for two weeks. It's absolutely yeah. the best part. It's my favorite part. That's great. <laughs> so how did you end up getting out of downtown LA and moving to like the Redwoods? What was that? Yeah, so that was uh, Quentin uh, basically decided that he he had been working in a lot of kind of TV and even doing a lot of um, audio and film and just kind of realized that he will, instead of just kind of working on large crews, he wanted to make documentaries. So um, he went back to school. He So we moved up here to for him to go to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and he got a new degree and now he's just making documentaries and teaching and um, we're kind of separating ourselves a little bit from LA to some extent. Um, not really intentionally, it's just kind of happening. Um, and with the change of the world, it's so much easier to stay connected to um, the industry and, and people. And so you can just kind of work a little further outside the epicenter. Yeah, and you don't have to, you can still enjoy the benefits of being there in the industry, but you don't have to be living right in there. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, sorry, I've, I've gone on a bit there, haven't I? So we'll get back to the travel bubble, yeah. but it's good to see you. Um, yeah. You're familiar with the concept, aren't you? Yeah, I'm available. I'll just a couple. You're doing great. Cool. Thank you very much. So I might jump in then, Rachel, and say, what would be your travel bubble destination number one? Yeah, so I'm probably the one that didn't listen to you and I stressed about this and thought about it from this way and that way over, <laughs> over and over. And finally, I just kind of was like, you know, I'm not going, I'm just going to go from like my gut. And for the first couple of years, right after I traveled, these are the places I always said. So I'm going to start off actually with Germany. Right. Why Germany? Yeah, so I, <laughs> I really love, I really appreciate structure <laughs> and going on a long trip like we did, um, you become very aware very quickly, which country makes it really easy for you to travel. Um, and I really appreciate it. I appreciate the infrastructure type of society that can, you know, um, allow for services and public options and things like that. Um, and I just really noticed it in Germany very quickly, right? Their, um, all of their different transportation from their trains and their buses and their uh, boats all kind of work off the same system. It's just really easy to move around. It's really easy to understand. And so that's probably like the lamest response ever, but I love it. Yeah, so <laughs> like the German efficiency. So that, that, yes. yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so conversely, where was, so you've obviously been around, how long had you been traveling at that point before you got arrived in Germany? Um, I think we were, we had only been traveling, I think about for eight or nine months. Um, and we had been in only two other European countries and mainly only Asia. Okay. Outside of that, yeah. So like you've, you were sick of like this, like 
no no information being available you didn't know how what was going to happen next getting from a to b but germany it was just all uh everything was good you need one ticket to get everywhere and it was all like it's all efficient because what people don't realize is like backpacking and traveling is tiring like sometimes you need a holiday to get over the backpacking it's like having a job because you you go somewhere and you don't want to miss out on something i was like oh i've got to go and see that museum now and it's like the last thing you want to do is go to a museum you'd rather just be sat <laughs> stay in bed but you're only there once so you've got to make the most of it and it's just like it can catch up on you so i, I see what you're saying you have to force a like a, a holiday like you have you have to just say okay Today, I'm just going to stay in the hotel and I might just watch a little TV and I have to rejuvenate. And, you, and I mean, you do, you judge yourself because you're on this beautiful, amazing tour, but the body needs to rest. <laughs> um, so like, we'd have to find a moment to do that. And there was a couple of moments that we, we did that. So yeah. yeah, it's important. I think you need to, yeah. So where did you get to in Germany on your travels? So I, I've been there a couple of times, but on that trip, um, we started in Köln and, um, and we got up to Hamburg and then came back down and went to Berlin. And we were only there for about three weeks. Okay. Um, yeah. And then uh, in the past, I'd been to Frankfurt and um, a couple other places. Okay. I hear Frankfurt is quite nice. I've got a friend that lives in Frankfurt. Yeah. Um, and last time Frankfurt was mentioned on the podcast, he messaged me and chastised me for not mentioning him so there you go there you go steve you've got a personal message personal mention now so yeah. um so what sort of stuff did you do when you're in these cities yeah so um you know kind of where we what we did with everywhere is um we very quickly tried to meet as many people as we could um both for the servicing the documentary and also it's because it's literally the way I like to travel the most um and the more I can stay like and with people um it, it's the, it's the part that I care about the most but um in Kong we honestly we we got a place and we met some people but then in Hamburg we had a good friend and so we stayed there for like a week um and you know, we just went to a, <laughs> um, a lot of really crazy um, parties and concerts. And um, it's very interesting. I've, I, the other thing about Germany for me is that I've never seen such a party, quite honestly. Mm. Um, uh, I, I don't, it was actually somewhat legendary, even in Hamburg. So I, I meant to look up who was playing, but it was this massive concert where it was just you know, police had to come because it was just such an overwhelming, the black bloc socialists paraded down the street and like ran into the cops. It was a really intense um, situation. And then there were <sighs> bottles everywhere that just got all cleaned up at 6 a.m. And you could have never known it happened because again, <laughs> German, German efficiency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so that was really kind of like a cultural experience I've never kind of been around before um and then um you know we did your classic go to as many top museums as you can I personally love history museums um, I'm a big study of culture and how people live together more than anything um and got down to Berlin and um 
and definitely did, you know, East Berlin and yeah, the wall. Well, that, one of my guests in episode six, Ian, like he said, like, obviously Germans are famous for like efficiency and like being like structured, like you've already mentioned, but again, they are pretty loose and they like to have a party and like to have a good time. So they are like the best of both worlds. You can, you can be, you know, that your train's going to be on time, but you can also stay out all night and have a, and have a good party as well. It's so true. <laughs> and I just think it's a lot of fun, even when you meet, um, I know it's such a stereotype and I hate to do it, but I'm going to do it. Like when you meet Germans, even along the travels, like I've never watched people drink so much. Well, maybe some Scottish people, but like, <laughs> like it's just there. It's always a party. <laughs> so you say you like to meet people. What are you, how are you meeting them? Is it on like, like couch surfing or Facebook? What, what, what's the way in there? Yeah. So couch surfing for us was always the, the best way um, to meet people. And you know, even if we were going to actually stay with them or we just connect with them because it's just, uh, it opens you up to people who um, aren't interested in meeting you too, right? And so there's already kind of an open yeah, connection. they're already right? open mind. They're on there for a reason. They want to meet people. And, yeah. and definitely they show you places that you will never know existed. And it's it's true, like you're really tapping into local knowledge. Um, yeah. I, I was, I did journalism um, at university and one of our lecturers was like, a former travel journalist and what when he was writing like pieces for about different cities what he'd do was go on to couch surfing and message like 10 people and go what's your favorite bar that only you know about what's your favorite restaurant and he patched together these like under the radar pieces about cities all from couch surfing and he didn't have to do any work at all all he had to do was message <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it's in it's smart <laughs> but like you are like tapping into like local knowledge which is what people want really like they, they want to get under the skin of a place and really get get to know it and couch surfing definitely used to do that i'm not sure i've not been on it for years since but it, it was definitely the way to do it back then yeah i agree i haven't been on it in a while and i have a sneaking suspicion there's probably a new best place for people to meet I already feel like I might be getting old and I already don't know the hip ones but at the moment you know we did a little of couch surfing before we left and so we had a couple of people stay with us as well and um and one of the first things I also noticed is that like when I had to look back on my experience having people stay with us I realized that like I approached it far more rigid um and almost a little more fearful than the rest of the people around the world kind of embrace yeah. me. And so like, I kind of, you also just kind of learn to realize that there's just like another community of people that exist throughout the whole world that just, you know, love, <laughs> love meeting people and trust people. Um, you know, we, we were very like, you can't be in the house when we're in the house um, because that just made sense to us. Right. And um we were just kind of like kind of a little bit rigid about how we did things. And then we stayed in places where people, you know, even had a phone that they gave us. They were like, Hey, you know, this is a spare phone. You know, you can use yeah. it while you're here. Um, you know, somebody wasn't even home when he was supposed to be, um, 
he's like, well, I have a wedding, so I'm not going to be there, but I, I guess I could, um, you know, pick you up from the train station. You can stay at my house while I'm at this wedding. I won't see you. I feel terrible. I'm not going to take you around the city. I just, I feel so bad, but you can stay in my house. And I knew him for five minutes. I mean, yeah. that's just the type of world that we can actually live in. So. Yeah. Um, did that change you then like after, because obviously you'd hosted before. Did that, did that change your mindset? Like going on from that then? Definitely. I mean, um, it makes you kind of realize some of the cultural stereotypes the, that you have about even yourself and your own communities, right? And so all of a sudden, you just kind of realize that, you know, people are far more trusting and open. And, um, I, you know, honestly, my travels changed me completely politically. And I don't know if we were going to get into that, but like, um, I jokingly call that I have an Osaka moment and um, in which like traveling, like my whole brain just kind of explodes. And I was like, oh, wow, I just, I don't know anything. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I mean, it can really change you if you're open to it. Yeah. So um, do you want to explain your Osaka moment then? What was that? <laughs> or is it hard to explain? Yeah. Uh, no, I think I could. Um, so we, again, we interviewed anywhere from, you know, three to seven people, every country we went to. So we just met people over and over and over and um, making the film, we were trying to see if there were parallels and within the millennial generation and this idea of, you know, shared experiences, um, maybe through uh, technology now that we were, um, you know, now we as a generation live in the most like connected time in people's history. Right. So we were wondering if we were now sharing more um, kind of personality traits and experiences across cultural lines, cross country lines. Um, One of the biggest things we learned from a global perspective is, you know, kind of the prevalence of an imperialist shared experience. Right. And the fact that like, of course the U S like projects out our media at such a higher amount because of the financing of it and the fact that like we control so well, you know, many things. So um, that was unfortunate to kind of realize, right? That we weren't, we didn't have an equal mutual shared experience. We still had this prevalence of an imperialist mentality. So that was hard. And I was learning that along the same time as I, when we were in Japan and we were sitting there and we were kind of working through the film and I was talking about how like, you know, why was I trying to make this film to begin with? And what was the point of this? And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to bring new ideas to people and I wanted them to have this opportunity to um, learn about people who maybe who don't have the opportunity to travel. Right. And I'm like trying to come up with all these reasons. What am I doing? Why, Why should I be doing this? And I basically just kind of fell under the fact that um, it might feel like a jump right now. I might not have explained it well enough, but like you do nothing that's not self-serving. Um, it's yeah, so a, like maybe you wanted to if, like make this documentary that was going to be a success and like, mm-hmm. like you win an award and really and it was all, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, and like I got to travel, right? And even if I 
even if I do give all these things to people, right? Like I get to feel good about it. Like, look what I was able to do for people, right? And we have to be able to be like honest about that, that like all of our intentions are self-serving. Like even if all we're going to do is give someone our bowl of soup and now we're hungry, we're going to feel good about it, right? And so like there's no non-self-serving actions. And many people might've already realized that, but like someone like me growing up in a, like a highly Christian family who like, you know, the only way to know to be good is to like help others. I kind of like, it was like a mind boggling moment when I was like, wait, so there's no helping others without helping myself. I'm always going to be selfish. (laughs) So that was a moment that changed me because honestly where I'm at now in my life is kind of a deeper realization how important it is to take care of yourself and I think that we all don't take care of ourselves enough and what comes from that is we're not actually aware enough of what we need to survive and be happy and healthy and we live lives focused on work focused on just, you know, making enough money to buy that next thing. And that, per- that allows a system, I don't want to get too political. <laughs> that allows a system that does a lot of really terrible things in the world, right? And so I actually think like the most dramatic thing you can do in life is to actually care about yourself and realize what you actually need to be happy. Um, rather than thinking you're a good person because you, you know, you did you did this one thing for someone and so now you've done all you need to do and you feel better about yourself and um it's so much deeper than that right like but so is there still room for altruism within that like you can still go and do a good thing as well so is there there always going to be a guilt there as well so it's interesting um i i really believe in solidarity now personally like i really think that we have to do things for each other um, because I think altruism allows you to think like you're in this better position and you can help others rather than realizing people can help themselves and you can work with them. Like you can help them help themselves. Right. So, so they can tell you what they need because too often altruism, you think, you know, what someone needs, you think that you you have the right answers because you're not struggling. So you're going to tell them what they need and you're going to show them the path. And solidarity believes that person is fully capable of knowing what they need and they can tell you. And if you have it, you can help them. And so that's why I don't like to look at it as altruism anymore because too often we think we know better than others. Okay, yeah. Um, I know what you mean, so like, like in a cliche, teach a man to fish rather mm-hmm. than give a man a fish. Well, actually, on, no. only only if he asks you to teach him. Yeah, because <laughs> he needs to come up and say, I need to learn how to fish. Yeah, okay, right. Or you can just say, I need a fish and you can give him a fish. Yeah, okay. Right? Like, yeah, yeah you can give a man a fish if he wants a fish. Just if he doesn't want a fish. Don't give him a fish. Give him an apple. Like, yeah, care okay. what he wants. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a really good uh, Sam Harris podcast where he talks to there's this uh, man who's a big proponent of effective altruism, and he's a professor in uh, uh, Oxford. I'll, I'll point you in the direction of that because he seems to be saying um, 
sort of the sort of what you're saying as well. There's, there's definitely an alignment there. Um, but it's, in, it's definitely interesting. Um, so, but back to Germany. Back to Germany. Yeah, sorry. No, no. <laughs> I think that I want to chat and just talk about things, but <laughs> we, we can always get back to travel. Um, while we're there. What, what was the most, uh, what would be the activity that you recommend people to do when they're in Germany, must do? Yeah, you know, it's something that is probably on every like what to do in Germany list or what to do in Berlin list that I still just think it's worth doing is that in East Berlin, I think it's called Mara Park. I don't know if you've ever been, they do like the large karaoke with it's like 200 people sitting in this open amphitheater in a park and you just, and they come in and you all sing karaoke together. No, I didn't, I didn't. I've been to Berlin, but I've never, never done that. No. Yeah. It's so much fun. <laughs> and, so, um, do you have to like buy tickets or is it just like an op? Is it just, you just go along? Is it a screen and stuff? No, it's completely free. It's just like a guy standing in the middle of this, like, you know, old um, kind of rock stage. And he's just got his little karaoke machine, but he puts up the big speakers and yeah, everyone sits around this kind of like open um, amphitheater in circles and, you just keep doing song after song after song. He brings people down. It's a lot yeah, of fun. That sounds fun. Is it like once a week? Um, I I think it has to be a couple times a week because I don't know how we just happened upon it, but I would have to we'd have to go look at it again. Okay. Um, but yeah, I really that was amazing to me. That's fun. Um, and you just chatting with people and like probably maybe beers involved. Uh yeah, it, it was a lot of English music. Um, and so, but there was there was some German as well, and you just kind of went with it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's cool. I like that. I'll put a link to that then. I'll, I'll have a look and put a link to that. That sounds fun. Um, and I'm, I do quite enjoy karaoke. <laughs> uh, guilty pleasure. Um, so what would be the must uh, have food in Germany? Yeah, so... First of all, I have to tell a story of kind of like my ignorance. So uh, the U.S. has a pretty large population, German population, especially where I'm from, you know, Stratman's even, the origin is even German. And so I grew up on a lot of German food and I, you know, it's to me, it's kind of like my staple, like uh, in the middle of a, in Missouri, in the middle of America, like it's just very uh, German. And so I couldn't wait to go and, and, just eat all my favorite foods. And um, I kind of told you where we were at. And so we were always having a hard time just finding, you know, to me, like, I just wanted some like bratwurst and sauerkraut, and, right? And, yeah, yeah. and it took me a week to realize that like, that's all really from Bavaria. <laughs> and we didn't go to Bavaria. Um, so that was kind of, <laughs> I had it, I ended up being a little fat the whole time yeah. and couldn't experience <laughs> all the greatness of other German food because of that kind of like yeah you wanted uh, what you like, wanted mm-hmm. but what you knew but, but in true form my you know again my my favorite experiences are just being with people and so my my good friend who had lived with me in the U.S. as well um took me to his parents house and um up in Hamburg and we we'd made frikadellen together 
And um, we, you know, made uh, fricadellon and potatoes. They're and- a bit like kind of like meatball-y type burger type things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that was my favorite um, food experience because I always love just when, um, even if it has to be like a cooking class because you don't have this amazing experience, I always love just getting to actually learn how to make something um, and find out why other people like it. And so that was definitely the best. Oh, that's experience. cool. That's yeah. good. So is there anything else you'd like to say about Germany before we move on? Anything that happened to you or any stories? I would definitely say that um, one of my other things I liked is how vegan friendly Germany was. Um, I'm still not vegan myself, but my husband is vegan. And it, it was very um, prevalent um, much more than a lot of places across the, the country. So anyone who's a vegan, um, Germany is very friendly. <laughs> okay, so they're quite progressive. Yes. Okay, cool. In all ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen some of those clubs. So, <laughs> um, so Germany would be your travel bubble destination number one. What would be your travel bubble destination number two? To, to keep with really enjoying structure. Um, <laughs> I know I kind of sound like this, like California hippie who loves structure and it's probably confusing people, but I do love structure. <laughs> um, Japan. Um, okay. As my, as some of my good friends like to call it planet Japan. <laughs> uh, why Japan? Um, so again, um, you know, showing up, uh, you could just so quickly realize um, how well that country was put together from the transportation, um, just to communication and organization and, and everything they do. And plus, it ended up being the last country on our entire like trip, right? Oh, really? Yeah. So, yeah, it ended up being the last one. I know, weird. We went back, we got denied it from India. It was a whole thing. And so we ended up going back to Asia. Um, so was, it, was it always on your list to go? It wasn't. Okay. It was a, yeah, we were, we were in Africa and um, went back up to the Middle East and we were trying to get into India. We were going to end in India. We got denied. And so, yeah, we added it. Um, and it was between Russia and Japan. Um, <laughs> and so Japan went out and um, I had never wanted to go like, you know, I, I try to think about why this was. And I think it's because like the stereotype in my head of Japan was it was all anime and it was for people who loved, you know, Nintendo and comic books. And I don't know why I had just kind of overlooked it as a country somehow, which is terrible. And I had, and so I was not really focused on it. And um, we did go and one, and my, from the first moment, it was the, the most friendly greeting um, that we had ever actually gotten yeah. in our entire trip. And so that was the first moment of like, In what okay. way? Like just, when you got off the plane, like people were, people were nice and more polite? They actually have people, and I don't know if this is just, you know, like every airport, but like there were just like a row of people standing there waiting for you in the airport as you got off the plane to like help you um and talk to you about you know 
where you needed to go, why, you know, where, what could they do for you? And they were just employees of the airport there just for that. Okay. I never, I still to this day, I've never experienced that anywhere else. (laughs) Um, And so I was like, okay, um, this is amazing. You know, yet again, it's a culture who's willing to invest money and pay people just to like help people. It's just to be nice. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, you know, things were easy getting on the, the um, Japan is a privatized transportation system, but fairly just as well connected right it's not all public like germany but um everything's easily connected there's not a place in japan you can't go to easily by train and bus and i just i really respect that (laughs) i really appreciate it um and i mean i've done all of the (laughs) right back tucking where it did take like three different like tuk-tuks to get to someone in a little van to then take another tuk. I, I, that's a fun, that's an yeah, adventure. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes the ease can be really nice. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I appreciated that. Um, you know, when I travel, you know, the first thing I feel like I see is like the views, um, you know, and then the, and the architecture and the colors and, and the, you know, the, the land scenery, what kind of trees is there mountains. It's like the first thing that like, I'm trying to take in, but then the second I try to take in, and this is how I take in everywhere I go is how does it work? Like when do things open and close, you know, like, um, how are people interacting with each other surface level? Right. Um, what does it seem like they're, they're they're caring most about you know like in japan everyone like kind of like lines up to get on um public transportation and (laughs) you know having been in like thailand and china and other places i mean thailand is is better than china but like in china it's just like a mad dash push in um japan was just like everything was just a little bit more like respective space and and moving in like calmly and respectfully and I just, I really kind of appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like there is that, um, like that famous thing where they'll, they'll push you, like they have the people on the Tokyo trains to cram yeah. to cram the people in, but they do like, like they say, they will, they will queue and they do like sticking to the rules and structure. Like, I'm, I like jaywalking. I don't like jaywalking. I just happen to do it. Like, <laughs> if there's no, if there's no cars and it's a, there's a red man. I'm still going to cross. But a couple of times in Japan, I got shouted at um, for doing that. And like, yeah, yeah. And I I don't even, I didn't even think about it really. Like I was just crossing the road because it was safe to cross. But like, I remember that being a thing. Yeah. Like people shouting and saying like, you can't cross like in an angry way as well. So um, they do stick to the rules and they do like the structure, but I'm the first one to complain when, people push in front of me in the on the train or something on the train on the bus first so i do like it i'd rather get shouted at for crossing the road than um be, than knock you up for a bus it's one of my biggest pet peeves is when like people cut in line mm. <laughs> like i don't know what it is but like i because they're like they think they're self-important enough yeah, right yeah. to get there before everyone else it, dri- it drives me crazy so i like it but 
I will say they, they do really like their structure. And we had met more than a couple people and interviewed a couple of them too, who really struggled with living within that kind of deep structure, right? And like when you choose to be different in a way that they don't approve of, because actually Japan approves of a lot of difference in some ways. Um, they're actually very kind of a free society in many ways when it comes to things like sex and appearance and things like that sometimes um but some people you know there was there was a lot of people who shared with us um you know when you step outside the lines that they don't approve of and I can't remember the words anymore because it's been too long that like you get highly shunned so um yeah it's definitely you know a give and take in all situations about um you know structure can also breed um you know, having discontent. Yeah, yeah, if you're if you're mm-hmm. going against that structure, then you're not yeah. going to have a nice life. You're not having a good time. Yeah. yeah I remember, speaking of the subject of sex, I remember I was I'd I, on Facebook the other day. I'd put a call. I was going to Japan. I put a call out. Any recommendations? And I think you'd actually commented uh, the the love hotels in Osaka. That was your recommendation. I think. Yeah. I. <laughs> so first of all, the hotels in in general. Um, in, in Japan, because I don't know if you got to do the container hotels either. The, the, like the little the, pods. The, yeah. The pod. I could talk forever just about hotels. <laughs> <laughs> like there's so many different types. Did you do the love hotel? Did you check it out? Um, no, sure answer. No, I didn't actually know. Uh, no. <laughs> I'll go okay. back. I'll go back. So- <laughs> <laughs> The Love Hotel, um, and I, I think they're throughout the country, but we went to the one in Osaka. But I have to tell you, it I, we were kind of immature and like kids almost like, I don't know, like in a candy store or something because it was just so overwhelming that like we weren't, we didn't, my husband and I didn't even feel sexy. <laughs> like, we were just like, what is this place? Yeah. I mean, you know, there was like a vending machine for things inside the room and i don't even like you know what's the rating on your podcast maddie (laughs) um it's it is a it's an a explicit Um, okay (laughs) there's like a little room that we can only imagine is for like dom dominatrix right like you go in that little room bad boy like i mean like a little cupboard where you lock up like where you lock up your yes okay That's interesting. And like you got your food, like, you know, we would order like room service because the idea of a love hotel is you don't leave, right? You go to a love hotel for like two days, you stay in the, the love room and you don't leave. And so you come in and you just, you are getting like room service all day. Well, they don't even like open the door because you could be in any type yeah. of situation. So the there's cupboard. like, there's like a slot and it like, your food just comes through the slot. So yeah. there, there is no people interaction. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's like next to the bed, you open up like the bedside table and there's like every sex toy you could ever imagine. And like, for me, it was like, I know it's, I'm in Japan. These, these are cleaned. I know they're hygienic, <laughs> but I, I know yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's just too much. Um, you go in the bathroom and it's a giant bathroom with like all these waterheads and like a, all different row of sex toys that you can use in the water now. Okay. Um, I just can't even tell you that there was a swing. <laughs> I mean, literally anything you want to do, 
you can do in your sex, your love hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And is it because like a lot of people live in small apartments or they maybe live with their families, they have to look after the older generation, so they, like, they'll they go to escape in these to these places is that what they're there for you know i think it's a i think it's a lot of things um i do think they live generationally um and so yeah that there's not that kind of privacy but from the other things you know we met someone actually in china who was japanese and we talked to him a lot about this um before we ever went so i didn't know about love hotels but you know And I know that this is not like everyone, but there's a large part of the population that just really embraces like fetishes, right? We hear about all of like the, you know, different fetishes that you can find, you can access in Japan. And they just don't, they don't look down upon it. It's just a part of sexuality. And so I think also, um, you know, like just a married couple would go because you're not going to like spend money to have all of these things necessarily in your home, even oh, if okay. you have privacy, right? But you're going to like explore and you're going to do things. Yeah, um, okay. Um, again, I grew up super strict Christian in the middle of America. So like this was like mind-boggling opening for me. But um, yeah, it, they're just a much more open to sexuality. Yeah, well, like, I know the, the little pod container hotels, they've taken off. Like, they're everywhere now. Like, a lot of hostels have turned into those because they are good. Like, they, you've got your own private space. And I think all hostels should be like that because I, I, I hate hostels as a rule, um, even though they are good for meeting people. But uh, maybe these sex, maybe these love hotels will take off uh, around the world as well. Yeah, I mean... You know, it's so weird because Germans are also stereotyped as kind of like the fetishes. So I don't know what that is that I think two countries so similar. But um, there's also the World War II axes. So I I picked two countries that have a little bit maybe too much in common (laughs) in some bad, weird ways. (laughs) Um, um, But yeah, no, I think uh, I think it wouldn't be terrible if the if the world embraced a little bit more um sexual exploration probably yeah it definitely saved me a lot of money anyway so <laughs> <laughs> um so what what would be your uh, must do activity in japan then um well so to stick on the hotels the one we also didn't talk about are the onsens so like oh, yeah, the bathhouses yeah. and so we also so we went from like osaka to kyoto to um at the base of like Mount Fuji on Lake uh, uh, Kawaguchi and then yeah and then and then into Tokyo and so when we were on Lake Kawaguchi we stayed at onsen and you know for like a couple days of just like relaxation and so um, you know a lot of um, countries have their forms of bathhouses we went to a bathhouse actually in England as well but um, we really enjoyed that experience in Japan and, um, you know, you come in and they just kind of like give you your robe and, um, you know, whether you're in your room or you're in the open bathhouse, you know, it's just, it's just that relaxation. Time, yeah. Like so. us English, we're a bit like a bit prudish. We don't like getting naked really. So it's hard to overcome, uh, overcome that when you first go into a Japanese bathhouse, cause you have to be naked and then they yeah. give you a little plastic stool and you got to like wash yourself and then you just go into the bath, but it's it's so common and such a thing there that it's not really. It's just like it just is what it is. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know your experience, but anytime I, um, I have experience in both China and Japan getting naked in front of people. Right. And they, you can tell as you walk in that it's totally normal and, you know, everyone's just moving around. But when that person walks in who looks different, everyone does stare at you. So I do think people have to realize to some extent, like, you're going to be stared at. And it's just, you know, if you look that differently than people and they're not used to it, like it just happens. Um, but yes, it's, it's, it, I, I've also gone to some of the um, bathhouses here um, in LA um, that they're actually like Korean bathhouses. And then, then it gets back to like, um, we're all just together and it's, it's not weird and you okay. could be naked. Yeah. yeah. I went in one in Japan and like I went in like sat on my stool I didn't look he was in like the actual bath bit because I was like I'm just gonna keep my head down I'm gonna like do like the ritual washing whatever and then I'm gonna go over and just get in the bath it is what it is I'm gonna go and do that and I so I walked over and then like I finally clocked he was in the bath or he was in the water and it was too big like sumo guys like literally sumos and it was only a small bath there was only room for them to in there <laughs> so i'm just stood there like naked uh, i had to walk up to the pool it's go, hi guys uh, and then there was no room for me so i had to just walk off and get dressed it was so weird it was like right there couldn't have been two bigger men in that like there was literally no room so I they had to build myself up to go and do that. And in the end, I had to just walk back out because there was no room for me. Um, but I did go to another one, which was up in the, up in the mountains, like in the Japanese Alps. And it was outdoor and a hot spring, and it was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, that was my favorite thing. I wanted to do the outside part, and it was so cold. No one was out there. So I was like the crazy, um, the crazy one that went outside, like freezing. And I was like, I'm going to make this happen. I'm <laughs> Beautiful. So would you say that would that was like the must do thing? Go go to a bathhouse, go to an onsen. Oh man, I mean, yes. I would also definitely do like your quintessential karaoke in Tokyo. My last night on the entire trip in Tokyo, all of us got together, um, who I had met, and so they had not met each other. So that was fun too. We okay, had, like, so were these all like document- people that you met for the documentary, or yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was so much fun. Um, we also ended up getting a karaoke room one time to take a nap. <laughs> we were so tired, and we were staying at the um, we were staying at the pod hotel, right? And so you can't really like stay in the day, right? They yeah. like put up it's like a hostel, and they like just put up your stuff. And we were so exhausted in the middle of the day. We had walked everywhere, and so I was like let's just go get a karaoke room for an hour. <laughs> so we paid for a karaoke room and we just laid down and took a nap. <laughs> like a power nap. That's a good idea. Yes. Yeah. So you can use those things any way you need them. <laughs> yeah. Some, some guy paid for me to do karaoke in Japan. I did, did a bit of Bruce Springsteen and he was disappointed. I think he was expecting me to be good. <laughs> <laughs> but I really wasn't. Yeah. And I think he just thought because I was Western, and I, I could probably do Bruce Springsteen just like Bruce Springsteen. And uh, news surprise to him, I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll no. give it a good go. 
um so where, where did you get to then well, on your trip you went to tokyo osaka obviously yeah and we went to kyoto and did the bamboo forest um when we were in japan we spent a lot of time going to a lot of the the gardens um and a lot because it's just so relaxing and um serene and beautiful and we were also really interested in we had been to so many different um Buddhist countries at that time and um it became very interesting to us to see how Buddhism was different in all the different countries like yeah. how how it, it became an interesting way to like notice the difference about just that country's culture yeah. is to see how they interpreted the religion um so we we started kind of noticing those markers of like how could we better understand this country and these people and this culture and so religion became one of them for us and so we went to a lot um a lot of their um sanctuaries yeah okay that. i thought that's a good idea um what would be your food of choice or any food memories from japan yeah so um for me it has to be the sukumen um, which I don't know if you had that when you were in Tokyo, but our good friend Daisuke um, took us out to dinner and he was, and he said, this is the best thing. And it, it's basically a different type of ramen if you've ever had it. So it's sukumen is you get the bowl of broth separate from the noodles right. and you dip the noodles into the broth. Um, and so usually it's a little bit more about the noodle than the broth, right? And like your normal ramen, it's all about the broth and it's all about the flavors that they're working with. But in Sukumen, it's all about the noodles. And so they tend to be like always homemade fresh noodles, a little okay. bit thicker. Um, and so, and, and the noodles are kind of like um, cool to warm temp and you dip them in like a really warm broth. Okay. And, um, yeah, it was delicious. And so like in Tokyo, you can walk by like a thousand uh, ramen houses. But if you can find one that has sukumen, I would highly recommend it. Okay. How much is it S-U-K-O-M-E-N? Kind of it's T-S-U-K-E-M-E-N. Sukumen. Okay. I'll have a look at that. No, I've, I've, not, I've not come across that. Um, when I think of noodles in Japan, I, was, I think of the soba noodles, S-O-B-A. Mm-hmm. Um Again, so much time and effort goes into these, and it's just—it's all about the noodle, like you say, rather than the broth. It's like, like the these sober chefs, yeah. like they dedicate the whole lives just to making this one type of noodle, like very well. Yeah, and the same with the sukumen. You know, like you find your best sukumen house by like, you know, how thick you know, that noodle is. Is that a wheat noodle? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, yeah, it's all about the noodle. Okay. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to say about Japan before we move on? Uh, I, I don't know. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sure we could talk about Japan all day, but I know, no, I know what you mean. Um, so you've had two countries so far, um, Germany and Japan. What, what's going to be your third country? Well, just to to break the, um, yeah, exactly. I could have picked Italy, but I didn't. 
Um, <laughs> no, so I took a lot of time with this one. I went back and forth and it was really hard to go pick, but I actually finally went with Tibet. Right. I've never met yeah. anyone that's been to Tibet. So um, why Tibet? So, yeah, so it's, I had to go with it because it's truly probably one of my more unique experiences. Um, and because I have to go back, right? Like I, in the end, I picked all of these countries because I really want to go back to them. Um, and then Tibet, one, it's one of those situations that you have to do a, a tour right now. Yeah. Like you can't just go in. I was going to say, what is the process of getting into Tibet? What, what, how do you, how does that work? Yeah, it's very kind of difficult and expensive and um, for a lot of reasons. And so we were in China um, and we were talking about going to, um, India. We were thinking we were going to go to India next, but then, um, we decided we were actually, um, going to do the whole China to Tibet into Nepal. Yeah. And so even when we got the Chinese, um, cause you have to have an outgoing, um, trip plan to get your, um, visa for China. They won't let you just, like, yeah, come. yeah, yeah. I remember all that jumping through the hoops to do that. Yeah. yeah so we figured it out. And so, but when we went, to, this was the other reason actually um, that we almost got tonight for China because we put Lhasa as like our, um, the point in which we left China, which is politically in incorrect for Chinese because they believe they, you know, well, they do, I guess, own Tibet, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not actually a free and independent country. So the guy was so nice to us and he came out and he was like, you, you have to you have to take that off. That's going to be a problem. He was so nice yeah. Um, because he was like, they're going to deny you instantly because you're obviously a free Tibet person. Right. Um, so we, we took it out and we said Kathmandu would be our, um, but anyways, um, they let, they let the filmmakers who are free Tibet into their country. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what we had to do was we had to plan a, uh, a tour. You have to stay with the tour guide the whole time. They don't, they don't let outsiders go. And so we took uh, a two day train trip from Beijing into Lhasa, um, scheduled this tour. They kind of like pick you up and they take you from, you know, Lhasa into um, Nepal. And it's very expensive. And so there's like three levels, right? Like even within your same tour group, you can get like the high level, the medium level or the low level. Yeah. And, you know, anytime we're all traveling, we become very experienced in how to read all the blogs before we do something. And everyone said, don't do the low level. It's like, it's terrible. Don't do it. So we were always low level people, but we, we took the advice and we went to medium. We were the only ones who did the medium. And I'm here to say, if you're going to go to Tibet, just pay the money and go to the high. Um, so are you all on the same bus? What, how, how does it work? It's all about your hotels. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you, like, they drop you off, like you're here. Uh, <laughs> and the bus keeps going. Okay. <laughs> and so the thing is, is like the first couple of nights, we were all in the same hotel. And so we were like, okay, we don't really understand how we're paying something different. And then as you get deeper into Tibet, um, you know, 
I hear it's completely different now. I hear like China has been just like pushing people to move to Tibet because they're just trying to colonize it and they're just right. trying to remove the entire like indi- indigeneity of Tibet. Okay. So like I've heard it's very different and it's much more um, crowded and there's more, you know, restaurants and and hotels but even just about six years ago when we were there I mean as you get deeper in you know our last hotel was a yak hut right there's no hotels left and so um yeah no we got to a point where no that's exactly what happened I mean they we pulled up to this hotel they told us to get out our tour guide didn't even look at us in the eye and we should have (laughs) known we should have known if she can't look at us this is, might not be great. <laughs> <laughs> and so you go in, um, you know, and I, I know I can only imagine, Maddie, you've stayed at plenty of kind of crazy places. I yeah. have too, you know, but you go in and it was a, it was a full structure because I've stayed at plenty of places that are not those structures, right? Um, I don't even know if I want to get into this, but it was not clean and my tour guide wouldn't even answer my call anymore because I mean, she knew I was not going to be happy. And so I started, I tried to venture out and I was like, I will go find a different place to stay. This yeah, yeah. is going to happen. Um, and you can't, you know, you, you go up to a hotel and they had to take my passport when I first got there. I, can't, I was not allowed to have my passport on me while I was in Tibet and the hotel would not admit me without my passport yeah are, the, so, are the guards with you or is it is it like we, they leave you for the night and then pick you up in the morning how does that work yeah so she she was staying at the higher level so she stayed at the hotel with everybody else but yeah they did just you know leave me um and i think i was actually kind of breaking rules and laws just walking around yeah, without yeah. her um, but for my own sanity, I felt necessary to take that uh, risk. Um, but no, we, we had to go back and we didn't sleep that night. We, we sat up all night. Um, but so I highly recommend spend the money if you're going to try to go to Tibet. But w- were there anyone on the, lo- on the low option? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's crazy that they, see, they even offer that. What? If you don't mind me asking, what sort of prices are we talking here for this? How many nights is it? Is it like a five-night thing? It was seven nights. Um, and so basically you started off in Lhasa. There was a couple of days in Lhasa because Lhasa is a quite bustling city and it's even more so now. Um, and then you and you're going through and then there's a couple nights at Everest Base Camp and then you take a, what they call the road to death down into Kathmandu. Um, into Nepal. Yeah, so, yeah, that's that's the trip. Um, and honestly, Maddie, it's been six years, and I can't even remember. But I will say it was the most expensive thing we did on yeah, our right. entire trip. Okay. So, um, like, what are you doing on like your on your days? Is it like traveling, or like are you going to see like cultural exhibitions and museums, and what what sort of things are you doing? Yeah, so in Lhasa, you're going to the Pasola Palace, which is um, the winter palace um, because it's um, kind of, you know, lower. Um, And so then the 
And then as you're going up, you're going to all the different monasteries um, and you're all the way until you get up into Everest and then you can finally get to kind of like the, the summer palace. Right. Um, and so, you know, like everything else, I feel like it's, it's a little um, already, I don't know how to say this, like commercialized, right? Like even Tibet has been commercialized, right? I mean, yeah. Dalai Lama doesn't even live there anymore. Um, you know, he's been exiled into India. And so like there is, you go, you go to all the monasteries and the monks do truly live there and you, you are getting, you know, actually being able to, to, to see everything, but like, you know, you know that you're kind of seeing like the performance and they're doing something in the, in the back. Right. And so, you know, I love going to the monasteries and it was really interesting, but because you know that, because you know that you're just kind of like seeing a performance, like I actually more rather just talking to like the, the vendors on the street and like the tour guide, you know what I mean? Because I always kind of like search out that just kind of like, who's that everyday person who's like going to talk to me about what's living there. Because I love, I love learning the history of the monasteries and I love, and I love seeing them, but like, it's always like a performance, right? You can't, you know, you have to actually be Buddhist to actually get an original experience as it should be. Um, So that's kind of more what I, I like to, I had like to do and like our tour guide definitely opened up and told us a little bit more about basically like she's not supposed to say certain things. And so she was kind of closed lipped at first. And then as she kind of got to know people in the, in the group, she kind of decided who maybe she could trust. You could kind of tell like when certain people came closer, she'd get quieter. Um, And it it really kind of was that intense, right? Because she was kind of sharing more about her fears of what's going on still right now, which is China's trying to choose the next Dalai Lama um, and saying that they have every, you know, right to, to choose that rather than um, the people. And so, you know, that was, that was all very interesting um, to just kind of better understand like those levels of tension. Um, but really what made me like love Tibet and what we were getting to do is that it's, it's you're again, you know, obviously Mount Everest, like you're leading up to that high level yeah. of, and it's just gorgeous. Like, beautiful. Yeah. It's just out of this world. Beautiful. Um, and serene and I I noticed that I really kind of came alive when I got to just kind of sit within that kind of like wide open space okay yeah so I suppose it would be hard to say like a must do activity because you're on this tour but would you what what was like the highlight like is it just literally go there and enjoy the scenery and just soak it soak it up um I think one of my favorite things that was actually when we were at the Mount Everest base camp and we were in the Yakut. What, what, what it was, was that the entire group were all sleeping in the same, like, it was almost like a, 
I guess it was like a 20 by 10 yak hut. It was really yeah, yeah. quite large. And we, um, the kitchen's like in the middle. And um, we all were like staying together. And and I, I, like, I thought that that was probably one of the best kind of like experiences. And we were hiking up to the, the base camp of Mount Everest. So I definitely think if you get to Tibet, you want to get all the way up. Um, so how does you know, it work? Like, are you driving? And then it's going like, right today, we're going to walk to base camp from here. Like, yeah, that sounds quite hard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's just base camp. So it's like, it's not like you're actually hiking up, right? You're not like mountain climbing. Yeah, yeah. And so like you're driving as far up as you can. Quentin actually, unfortunately, had really bad elevation sickness. Um, he woke up in the middle of the night and they had to give him oxygen because that's yeah. how like, high up we were. Um, but I mean, I'm not the kind of person who's like, you know, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. Um, and, you know, I feel like you might be, but like, I'm definitely the kind of person who's like, <laughs> I definitely want to see these like magnificent places. I mean, so much about like the Tibetan Buddhist culture it's about like the highest point is the most holy, right? Right. And okay. there's something about that that really kind of it makes a lot of sense when you're up there. You know what I mean? I, I think it's similar like when you get to stare out into the ocean and it has like so much vast yeah. um, ahead of you and you just feel like so kind of like you're so aware of yourself and how small you are and how big the world is. I feel oh, okay. the same way when you're at like the tallest mountain peak. Um, and so I, for me, travel is so much about being able to like experience those types of moments, right. Where you get to just like be in this place, whether it's the tallest or like the widest open ocean front, you know, by yourself. Um, there's just something about that. Yeah. Okay. And base camp is is on my list of things to do, and like I'd like to go to Nepal and do a few do a few walks around there. I I get a bit of altitude elevation sickness as well, unfortunately, and oh. you can't really do anything about it. Like there's no physical, there's no physiological, like there's not anything to do with height, weight, age, sex. It's just it is what it is. So it's a quite unfortunate, really. Anyway, what would be your uh, food highlight of Tibet? I have to go with the momos. I um oh, yeah, I have yeah. decided I don't care if it's gyoza in Japan or a pot sticker or dim sum. I don't care what you call it, but when you bread meat and you boil it or you fry it, I'm there for it. Yeah. <laughs> dumplings. Yeah, so dumplings momo best. Is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Momo is the Tibetan dumpling. And so it's um, you know, if it's the most like authentic, it might have like yak meat. Right. Because like when you get really high, all that grows is like canola. So like the monks are eating like canola butter yeah. oftentimes to sustain themselves. And so like all you have is like yak and canola up there. Um, but obviously, um, they, you know, they'll oftentimes um, they'll make a lot of veggie ones with the canola like leaves and things so yeah, you have yeah. like a veggie momo or like a yak momo but then also you can also just get like potato or pork or whatever because they're bringing stuff in at the uh, you know no yeah they are beautiful it's amazing how many uh like cultures have these like their own version of 
like dump, dumplings, like gyo, like you say, gyoza. And as far as like pierogi in Poland, yeah, like yeah, they've all got their own version. They're all basically the same thing, and and they're all pretty much delicious. Yeah, <laughs> whether you fry it or not, you know, you yeah, can pack yeah. it up. Basically, an empanada is just like a fried dumpling. Yeah, it's all it's all the same thing. I think the same thing about so curries, right? Like you have your it's such a different like Indian curry from a Japanese curry to like a Thai curry. And I'm going to throw this out there and everyone can disagree with me, but I think like an American chili is like our curry. That's my, yeah. that's my, that's my opinion. And so it's just like, you know, it's kind of fun to try to figure out, uh, you know, food in general, the history and. Yeah. Like, I'm like, you've got like the noodles, which are basically just pasta. And then yeah. like, you've, they've got, it's gone into Italy where they call it pasta, but it's really just Chinese noodles. Yeah. <laughs> exactly the same. But yeah, it is, it is mad to think how, like, I suppose it, it might have been studied, but like, where did it start and how did it get from one place to the other? Like the, the diaspora of like populations taking things to different places. And yeah, I, I like that sort of thing. Well, that's one of the weirdest things, you know, was we started to uh, study like the historical routes of food and like to think about, you know, the tomato Italy didn't get the tomato until like the 1700s, I think, or 1600s. And right. it's like Italy, like, you know, all you think of is like a tomato sauce, yeah, right? Yeah. But like, that's not Frogs. indigenous to Aren't Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, you start to learn those little things and it's like really interesting. It's like, yeah, like the, the national dishes are, you know, all made up of food from around the world. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Like, well, famously the national dish of England is like the chicken tikka masala, which is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're known for tea, and you you just took yeah, we definitely didn't, too. we're no. not, definitely not growing tea <laughs> yeah. around here. <laughs> um, okay, so you've got the, the three countries now. You've got Germany, Japan, and Tibet. Yeah. Um, what would be your wild card destination? So um, I really am sad that I've never gotten to South America. Um, And so if I ever get to travel again, I've got to get, I really want to get into South America. And my, my country of choice to start off in is Argentina. Right. Why, why Argentina out of, out of the whole of South America? Yeah. So the more and more I traveled, um, I just kind of realized how much I liked getting out into nature, kind of like we were just talking about within Tibet, you know, when I was in, we went to Kenya, I felt the same way, right? Like I, I really enjoyed being in Nairobi and everyone I got to meet, but when we got out on safari, I'd never been so happy. Um, And I just kind of realized that like, I just wanted to get to see as many of these places. And so, you know, a lot of South America is beautiful. Like, you know, obviously you have the Galapagos and you have Chile, but in Argentina, you know, I want to get out into the mountains. I want to get down. Um, like Patagonia type place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to get to Patagonia. I just, I want to be able to kind of like see these places. Yeah. Um, and so, and then on top of it, I mean, Argentina has 
Um, I absolutely love their food and spices. Um, so I know I'll eat well while I'm down there. Yeah, yeah. I love their music. Um, I think their entire culture is pretty vibrant and fun. So I can't imagine I won't have an amazing time. No, I reckon you'll have a good time. Like, yeah. like I've not really been to Argentina, but I would like to go back. In my head, I've got, I really want to live in Buenos Aires for a bit. I've never yeah. been, but I reckon, <laughs> I reckon I could live there and enjoy myself for a bit. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> no, great. So, Rachel, before you go, I'd like to ask you a few generic travel questions. Is that okay? Yeah, let's do it. Great. So we'll start off with, were there any countries that narrowly missed out, making it into that third spot? So, so close. United Arab Emirates. Okay. Um, I absolutely um, loved it there. It is a deeply international country. Um, the, the Emiratis, right, are re- fairly ridiculously rich and separate themselves from the general population. Um, so everyone you're going to meet is just, um, you know, a visitor there, even if they were born there. Um, yeah. You cannot become an Emirati. So it's just this deeply international um, place you know Dubai is highly commercialized which can have its own kind of like fun for a moment like um exploration for sure like you can do some really crazy things in Dubai Abu Dhabi is the more traditional um and you know you have one of the most beautiful palaces in the whole world in Abu Dhabi and um mosques not polis sorry mosques and and i i got to meet some of the most amazing people there you know went out on a boat ride one of the most the one of the most amazing experiences of my life happened out in the desert desert of liwa um and what was, what was the most amazing most amazing experience of your life what was that so so we had met uh, Faraz, he's actually a Syrian, and he took us out on his boat and he told us that we had to go dune diving in Liwa. And, um, and so he set us up and he was like, you know, this is where you want to go. He, he said, you know, you could do one of the tours, but he's like, just rent a car and just go out there. Just, um, and then you can, you can go dune diving if you want, but just like make sure you get out to the dunes. And so we drove out. Um, and Liwa is like all the way at the edge. I can't remember how many hours it took us to get out there. Uh, but it's all the way at the edge. Like you're really close to Saudi Arabia at that point. And, um, uh, you probably saw us because in the happy video, I danced on the dunes. Yeah, so you yeah. probably saw like a desert that was Liwa. Okay. Um, so anyways, we get out there. And, um, you know, we had kind of chosen that we weren't going to like do the, the tour of like getting in the, you know, you basically get in like a big, like ATV and they like go dune diving. Right. And I was like, I was like, you know what? Like, I can't remember how much it was, but it was just the thing that we said, okay, we're not going to pay for that, but we wanted to get out there. We wanted to see the dunes. And so, you know, our little car wouldn't drive up. So we like climbed up to the top for me to like dance up there. And all of a sudden this like Escalade 
pulls up next to our car and we were the only ones there by the way like so that was a little weird to begin with but this escalade pulls up and we're like oh i wonder if like we shouldn't be up here i guess we should get down all of a sudden the escalade drives up the dune on the top of the dune and we're like what in the world um and so we're we're it was just this escal this person this escalated in us and so we were like all right let's just start walking down and we'll go you know and oh, it gets we were a bit out. scared yeah oh we were definitely scared just because it was again like no one else was there and yeah, yeah. we didn't really know if we weren't really supposed to yeah, be doing what feeling. we were doing yeah, you're like, is, this, is this forbidden are we okay yeah. Yeah. Oh, i hate and, that feeling and um and i can't remember the name the name of their traditional wear but he steps out and he was in a traditional, you know, the jacket and the hat. And, yeah. um, and again, the Emiratis stay completely separated yeah, from the population. So I had not even really come into contact with anybody yet. And so he just like steps out of his Escalade and he starts staring at us and, and we're just like, hi, we're going to go. And he was like, uh, and he just said, uh, drive. And we were like, oh, yeah, we're going to leave. We're going to leave. Sorry. Yeah, we'll drive. We're going to drive away. And he's like, no. And he points inside of his Escalade. And he yeah. goes, and he goes, trip. And we're just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, that classic um, trust people, right, that we had learned by now yeah. um, kicked in. And we got in the Escalade. And he, um, I got, I was in the back seat, and he, like, moved his mirror. And he kind of, like, looked at me. And he's like, ready? And he, like, giggled. <laughs> And I was like, oh, God, what is about to happen? And he took his Escalade dune diving through the Lila dunes. And so we, like, drive up and just go right back down. And, like, you see the sand literally on the in the sides of the um, window just, like, raising. Like, we're about to sink into this dune, right? And we just keep going up and down the dunes. And and then he, he would, like, stop and he would say, picture because I had our camera and he would like, let me get out and like take a picture. And then like, oh. we'd go like do driving again. He's like, picture. <laughs> and then, and then he like points up at this, like this, like really high, like dune. And he's like, ready. And, and I was like, okay. And so it's like a 300 foot top dune. And he like drives all the way up to the top. And he like, looks back at me again. And he Googles, he's like, hold on. And it was whoosh. Oh, that's amazing all the way down the dune. It, it was, it was amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, like the little, we could not say more than like four words and he just like took us through and, and we got done. He took us over back to our, um, car and I asked for a picture with him and he was just like, no, no Facebook, no Instagram. Um, <laughs> and I said, okay. And I took a picture with him and I've barely ever shown it to people, but it's like for my little, cause like I, the Emiratis are really not supposed to be around you, you know? And it's like, um, but yeah, I mean, he took his Escalade dune diving. I bet it was only one of his many Escalades. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that's so cool. That's so lucky, isn't it? But like you said, if you, you have to be have that mindset to trust him. And he did, and it paid off. Oh, yeah. I mean, I tell my friends and family and they're like terrified, right? They think that he has like an AR-47 in his vaccine is going to kill us. And it's just like, and you just, you have to open up and realize just how awesome life can be if you just trust people. Yeah, absolutely. So that being said, what would be your top 
travel tip then for someone about to go out traveling and backpacking, seeing the world? You know, um, I, I think it's getting to stay, you know, finding ways to stay with family. Like in this day and age, even sometimes that can be like Airbnb nowadays, right? Like you can just stay in like a shared room or, you know, like a, a room in someone's house. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, I love going to museums and all these kind of places and I love seeing all the nature, but if you're going to go to a country, I mean, one, you want to be able to go there long enough, but let, but I, I hate people who are like, like, Oh, well, if you only went for a week, you didn't go. The unfortunate part about that, especially as being an American, like we don't give our people an, enough time off to do that right and so like to make them feel like they've never seen a place unless they go for several weeks is like at this point like classist right for americans right because you get two weeks off sometimes the whole year long right and so if they took all their two weeks to go to somewhere then like yay for them um and so yeah so i think that like for me you know i want people to see places but like, if you're going to go to other countries, I think the thing that I would want to say, it's like, really make sure you try to meet people. Um, and so whether it's like things like couch surfing or, um, you know, even just Airbnb, it's, you know, put yourself within the people because you, you will, you'll find the best restaurants, you'll find the best like activities and you'll actually get to better know like what it is about this place that um, yeah. is different than your home. Yeah, it's good. And like, say if you've got like... Um... What I do, because I like running, I usually look for like running groups in a place and that's a way in Like, because usually they'll say, oh yeah, come run with us today and you'll, some, something will happen and that's that's a good way of doing it. And like, so if you've definitely got a hobby, that's a good way in, like, especially with Facebook groups nowadays and there used to be like Meetup, that used to be like an app and a site yeah. and that's a good way of doing it. Um, yeah. And you've got a way in then as well because you've got a shared hobby and a shared yeah. passion. So yeah, that's but yeah so whatever way you do it just find ways to connect with locals and get under the skin of a place mm-hmm, definitely. okay cool um a bit more materialistic what has been the best souvenir you've ever bought on your travels so this one maddie this was so hard because it all burned i know i like I, I, I was loath to ask that then i was like oh i hope you should, i hope they had some souvenirs somewhere else yeah that's terrible <laughs> so it, it's all gone all gone and so you know we you know we've went on other trips but the big 14 month trip we went to a lot of places and so we only had a backpack we were backpacking so we yeah. had a very strict rule of what we were allowed to take right because it had to fit and so we would only get one thing from each place. And it was always a piece of art of some sort. That was yeah, like yeah. our, that was our choice. And so, you know, we got these, these uh, wooden koi fishes that um, went on our wall from uh, Thailand that were probably one of my more favorite um, pieces that we got. Um, as you know, like the koi fishes, um, you know, one of the larger symbols of Thailand. And, and so um, those are probably something that I felt the most close to, but I almost have to say like the, the Tonka of Tibet, because a Tonka um, is a print of a mandala. So they, they create these beautiful oh, sand like mandalas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
that they, after they take very long time of creating these intricate designs, after having it um, show for a while, they just wash it away and do it again. And it's like a Buddhist act of, you know, not having these deep attachments to things. And so they also make these prints, uh, Tanaka, as a like symbol of this practice, right? That like you, you should take time to do something. You should take time to make it right and perfect and beautiful, even if it's not always going to be there because yeah, yeah. everything we should do is should be with intention and love and uh, respect. And so, um, and then you wipe it away and you do it again because life is ever changing. And so I think symbolically, I have yeah, to maybe yeah. go with That's that quite, because- quite poignant, isn't it? We've wiped it all away at this point. Yeah. Well, that's like, and does that make you feel better about it, thinking of me like that? I will say that something about, so something about starting fresh, I have chosen to really embrace. I mean, yeah. I am incredibly sad about losing everything I have. Um, but there is something about being able to kind of, live with intention and only have what I need and have less and focus more on, you know, maybe what I would like to do rather than what I want to have. So I am embracing that deeply. Um, But I mean, it's definitely hard when you lose, you know, heirlooms and things from your family. Yeah. Like like literally things that you, 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 irreplaceable. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, you got the memories and the feelings associated with that. That is terrible. Yeah, but I mean, the, the bottom line is you will always have your memories. And, you know, things like with travel, like we lost our pictures too of our trip because um, our hard drives burned. Oh, yeah, and so, I mean, we don't even have our pictures from all of our travels. And so it's like, it, it gets to that point that like, you know, you do things for the experience you you do this because like I feel like I've just grown learned so much you know um being so sheltered um you know like in America you're you're just kind of obsessed with ourselves and so we don't really know about the rest of the world like I I'm I'm constantly just like I feel bad about myself meeting people around the world, like how much they know about our country, how much they know about other countries. And it's just like, what is wrong with us, man? We just don't (laughs) so obsessed with ourselves. And so like, I feel so blessed to have traveled and just like changed as a person and learned um, that like, I can separate myself from all of that. Um, So I'm going to hold on to that. Yeah. It's sad. (laughs) Like there was, Famously, that artist, Michael Landy, I think that's his name, who, like, he destroyed everything he owned. He had, like, 7,500 pieces, and he catalogued them all, and he eventually, like, he opened up this big shop in the high street in London and set up this factory of, like, destruction. It was, like, anti-capitalism, and he destroyed everything that he's ever he owned. Um, but that was an art piece, and he probably made <laughs> probably made a lot of money off the back of that. And he had a choice. He did it. He was like in the same school as like Damien Hurst. He did that as because he wanted to for art. So I can't even imagine. It's it's so sad. But like, I don't want to dwell on the fact that it is sad because there's there's nothing you can do about it, is there? Really, it's like it is gone. So now you yeah. start again, and you like you say, you still got the memories. Yeah, and I think you know to I I you know I didn't know about that um, 
performance art basically but I'm gonna have to look into it now but like to their their point it's true we can get so easily wrapped up in the stuff we have or the stuff we think we want and you know it's oftentimes just like a capitalist marketing scheme so you want to buy more anyways and so I'm being kind of forced back into like what do you need (laughs) yeah I I always catch myself I always go I really want that new phone or I really want that new running watch or something and I go, do I really need it? Do I need a watch to run? No, I yeah. don't. I, I just need legs and some some shoes, really. And I've got to catch myself. Yeah, and if we need less, then we have to work less, and then we get to do more, right? So Yeah, yeah. You, you can even do, like, a podcast. That's a, that makes a loss. That takes, <laughs> up, takes up most of your time. <laughs> just don't buy the new watch. <laughs> <laughs> there you go there you yeah. go so rachel thank you so much for coming on travel bubble today it's been amazing I've, I've loved talking to you i think we've had a good chat yeah definitely thanks i missed you yeah well well if you ever get over to england again i'll uh i'll put you up in cornwall and we'll, yeah we'll meet again along the way i'm sure that sounds good well no yeah th- thanks for taking the time i, I really enjoyed it all right i ha- have a good day maddie You have been listening to episode 21 of Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias, and my guest, Rachel Stratman. I hope you've enjoyed that. It was fun. It was funny. Also a bit cerebral as well. But yeah, big thank you to Rachel for coming on. I liked her Osaka moment. If you've ever had an Osaka moment, then do get in touch. Let us know. Um, Travel Bubble podcast on social media. But now it's time for the Travel Bubble Film Club. I thought this week, because we we talked a bit about love hotels, didn't we? I thought it reminded me of an old documentary I watched. So I thought, let's uh, let's share that as part of the Travel Bubble Film Club. Um, and the documentary is called Love Hotel. It was on the BBC Storyville a few years back. It's from 2014. I read out the synopsis. In Japan, long working hours, cramped living spaces and the need for privacy drive many people to establishments that discreetly cater to lovers and their needs. So, I watched that before. Like I say, I love watching these films before I go to these countries, and that's what I did with Love Hotel. I watched, like, about ten documentaries about Japan before I went there, and that that one stuck in my mind, and maybe I thought about it when I was speaking to Rachel. And also a secondary mention is, I mentioned the artist Michael Landy, who, like, got rid of all his possessions... So there is a documentary knocking about. It's called The Man Who Destroyed Everything. And apparently, it was, it was from 2002, the documentary, and it was the very first programme to be broadcast by BBC4 on its launch night in 2002. That's an interesting fact for you, isn't it? But Michael Landy, a bit of a character, and he destroyed all his possessions. I think it would take me about 15 minutes to destroy all of my possessions. It took him about three weeks. I don't know what he's doing. But... Uh, again, so there are two Travelable Film Clubs of the week. If you've got any any films that you'd like me to check out, uh, do let me know and I'll watch it. And if I like it, I'll recommend it. Again, Travel Bubble is free, but if you do want to support us, give us a like on Facebook, on social media, subscribe to the podcast and go and give us a five-star rating. Go and rate us wherever you can. Go and give us five stars everywhere you can because it helps other people find the podcast and that helps us grow and keeps the podcast going and helps us helps us to provide more travel inspiration every week. 
Travel Bubble podcast is also brought to you by Matty Dice's Hiking Tours. If you do want to hike with Matty Dice, or you do want to run with Matty Dice, and you happen to be down in Cornwall, give me a shout, and I'll take you out. Obviously, I'll charge, I'll charge you money as well. Charge you cash. Cold hard cash. But it's worth it, I think. I've been Matty Dice today. My guest has been Rachel Stratman. You've been listening, and I'll see you again next week. Goodbye.